Chapter number 25 of A Woman of Yesterday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Woman of Yesterday by Caroline Atwater Mason. Chapter 25. Sin and hedgehogs are born without spikes, but how they would wound and prick after their birth we all know. The most unhappy being is he who feels remorse before the deed and brings forth a sin already furnished with teeth in its birth, the bite of which is soon prolonged into an incurable wound of conscience. Richter, on the steps of the rostrum as he descended them, John Gregory was met by a man of singular aspect, a man who has been encountered by us before in the house of Senator Ingram his son, Oliver. As the two clergymen who he had then addressed had been disturbed and even dismayed by this strange face and figure, the smooth egg-like face with its enormous forehead, narrow eyes, and wide thin-lipped mouth. So now Gregory drew back instinctively, finding the singular apparition thus suddenly before him. Mr. Oliver Ingram did not appear to notice the movement, but smiling his peculiarly complacent smile, held out one long sinuous hand, and as Gregory took it, not even eagerly, he remarked in his high feminine voice, I like your line very much, Mr. Gregory. Nothing would suit me better than to see these rich men brought to book. They'll get their comeuppance in the next world anyway. But I sometimes get tired of waiting. I would be a satisfaction to see dives. Ask her, taking his torments here once in a while, don't you think so? And as the malevolent leer with which the question was accompanied gave Gregory a chill of disgust. Oliver held in his left hand and a handsomely bound notebook and a silver pencil case, which it was his custom to carry everywhere. Gregory, now about to pass on and greet the crowd who were waiting to speak with him just below, was again sobbed. Just a moment, Mr. Gregory, said the other, slipping off the elastic and opening the notebook with the dexterity of constant habit. I want you to help me a little in gathering some very valuable statistics. It's rather in your line, I take it. I've been engaged in this work for several years and find it extremely interesting. Gregory noted the long, white, flexible fingers of the man and the look half of deficient intellect and half of cunning in his face. Please make haste, Mr. Ingram, he said shortly. There are others waiting. I am making a computation, Oliver continued imperatively. In fact, I carefully tabulated record according to nations of the probable number of souls from each nation now in Shoal. It is considered polite now to call it Shoal, I believe. We used to say hell when we were boys, didn't we, Mr. Gregory? And Oliver laughed his low, cruel laugh. Excuse me, exclaimed Gregory impatiently. I cannot give you any information on that subject. I've never been there. Allow me to pass on now. If you please. Oliver closed his book as if an unaccustomed to rebuffs. But as Gregory's forward movement obliged him to retreat down the steps, he marched slightly. I had a message to you from the senator. If you only weren't in such a hurry. He is one of the fellows that will have to go to now. 
we've been out. He has shekels, I can tell you. More than I can figure out. I should suppose Ahab would as soon have sent for Elijah. Did your father send me? asked Gregory, surprised. There were now at the foot of the steps, and the crowd was gathering about them. Yes, he would like to see you in his office on the same block, next building, as soon as you can get away from here. You work him right, and you can get something out of him for your utopia. The last words were called back aloud with a series of confidential nods. As Oliver turned and plunged into the crowd, who seemed to make a way for him with a special facility, Gregory saw him go with a keen sense of heat and discomfort. Half an hour later, Gregory found himself in the office of Senator Engram, seated in a substantial office chair by the well-appointed desk, while Mr. Ingram himself, as an evident and most unusual mental disturbance, walked up and down the room. Suddenly, he wheeled and confronted Gregory, as if with sudden though difficult resolution. Mr. Gregory, he said, low and with the stern, terse brevity of a man who finds himself forced to speak what he would rather leave unsaid. For over thirty years I have married certain facts in my personal history, shut up in my own memory. Not one other being, to the best of my belief, has shared my knowledge. Tonight, I cannot tell how, I do not know why, I feel that I must break silence and before you. Stranger as you are, unload my burden. A strange compulsion seems upon me to disclose the things I've the third toe lived to conceal. What there is in you or in what I have heard you say to bring me to this point. I cannot understand, but I feel in you something which makes you alone of all men I have ever met, the one to whom I can speak and must. Are you willing to hear me? John Gregory noted the set, hard lines in the lawyer's face, the knotted cords in his hands, and the tone, half of defiance, half of self-abasement, with which he threw out this abrupt question. Accustomed to encounters with men in their innermost spiritual struggles, Gregory was in no way astonished or excited by the surprising beginning of their interview, and simply nodded gravely in token that Ingram should proceed. I will not affront you by demanding secrecy on your part, the latter began hotly. If it were possible for you to betray my confidence, it would have been impossible for me to give it to you. I understand, men. He paused. Gregory made no remark in confirmation of this assertion, but the direct and unflinching look with which he met the appeal in the eyes of the speaker was full guarantee of good faith. There was promise of profound and sympathetic attention in Gregory's look. There was also judicial calmness and reserve, and fine, the characteristics of the priest and the judge were singularly and united in him, and it was to the perception of this fact that he owed the present interview. I do not know whether I am a respectable citizen or a murderer. Ingram now began, turning again to walk the floor, 
while uncontrollable groan as a physical anguish accompanied this unexpected de declaration. Imagine, if you will, what thirty years have been inwardly with this uncertainty as food for thought. Serve to me by conscience or some fiend, morning and night. If I could have forgotten for one blessed day, it has been ingeniously rendered impossible, for sin in bodily form is ever before me. You have been my son. With this sentence, harsh and curt, Ingram paused, glanced aside at Gregory, who assented, and then continued to walk and speak. His voice and manner alike showed that he was holding himself in control by the effort of all his will. Strange distorting lines appeared in his face, and there was heavy sweat on his forehead. I was twenty-five years old when I was married, and was alone in the world save for one brother, Jim. We always called him two years younger than I. We had inherited a good name, strong physique, and some little property from our parents. Started in life shoulder to shoulder in Burlington, where we first began business life together. We became intimately acquainted with a family in which there were two daughters. The elder, Cornelia, was very pretty and singularly attractive. Men always fell in love with her. I did, desperately. The younger sister was a commonplace, uninteresting girl, rather sentimental perhaps, not otherwise remarkable. I shall make this story as short as possible. I offered myself to Cornelia after long wooing and was refused. I was bitterly wounded, angry, defiant, while I was in that state of mind. It became apparent to me that I was secretly an object of peculiar interest to the younger sister. Like many, another fool, half in spite and half in heart sickness, I sought her hand and was at once accepted, and our marriage followed quickly. Within the year, Cornelia and Jim became engaged. There was a hard sound grudge against Jim in my heart from the day I first suspected that it was he who had stood between Cornelia and me, and their engagement increased the grudge to hate. We had before this put the whole of our inheritance into mining fields in what was then the far west, buying up a large tract of land divided equally between us. The year after my marriage, we moved west for a time, and I started out as prospecting tour of our land. Jim to follow me when he had finished establishing a kind of business office in pioneer quarters in a small town as near the base of our operations as was feasible. My wife remained in this town, on horseback with two engineers and a copper expert and an Indian guide. I rode through our possessions. Miners were already at work and had pursued the lead far enough to prove pretty distinctly that while Jim's part of the tract was likely to be fairly productive, the veins stopped short of mine which was thus practically worthless. Back to our camp in a black mood, Jim, it seemed, was to succeed in everything. All that he sought was his, and for me, there was nothing but failure and defeat. All the way back, I brooded bitterly on the contrast between us, until I was in a still frenzy of jealousy when I reached the camp. The contrast between Cornelia 
for whom I was still, had a wild, hopeless passion, and my wife, sickly, dull, indeed disagreeable to me already, was maddening, and had been sufficiently so before. But now, when I thought of Jim with Cornelia for his wife, and the certain prospect of large wealth to add to his elation, while I was without a penny or prospect of any sort, the rage and fury in my mind became almost intoxicating. We had encountered hostile Indians on the trail as we returned, but our bold, daredevilish dash through this danger made slight impression on me. I think death would have been welcome to me that night. God knows I wished I had met it then. My heart was evil, though, but at least it had not the guilt that came later. I suppose, Mr. Gregory, that I am answerable for my brother's death, not in the eye of the law, but before God. And yet, if you could tell me that I am mistaken, that I exaggerate, that other men would have done the same and held themselves guiltless, if that could be, Ingram broke off and fixed his eyes on Gregory's face once more, as if an appeal for his life. Please go on, was Gregory's response. But the words were gently spoken, as the words of a physician when he is diagnosing a manifestly mortal disease. Very well, said Ingram harshly. Jim was at the camp and was boy enough to parade a letter from Cornelia before me. We quarreled fiercely about what I cannot remember, but I could not restrain the storm of rage and jealousy in me. It had to break loose somewhere. I refused to tell Jim what I had discovered regarding the lead, and he declared he would go and find out for himself. I said he would be a fool if he did, but gave him no hint of the fact that there were hostile Indians on the way. He knew nothing of the conditions, nor the character of the people about us, having never been in the country before. I was early in the morning. We had ridden all night, and the men had gone to their tents and were sleeping off the effects of our struggle. I told Jim he could not get a guide. He merely whistled in a light-hearted, careless way he had, and started off to a neighboring camp in search, as I inferred, of some escort. I saw him no more, and made no attempt to govern his actions, and did not even know whether he had started, who and what guide was whom he obtained. I learned later. I slept most of that day after Jim disappeared exhausted in body and mind, and continued to sleep far into the night, keeping my tent door securely closed, as I wished to see and speak to no one. It was perhaps three o'clock in the morning, but following when I was roused by a strange noise at my tent door, starting up from my bed on the ground, I saw that someone had cut open the fastings and the flap was drawn back. In the opening thus formed stood the shape of an Indian rider on horseback, perfectly motionless. The moonlight, which was unusually brilliant, fell full upon the face of this man, and I recognized him at once, with a horrible chill of foreboding as a half-witted Indian, who sometimes acted as a guide, but only to those who knew knew better than to accept his services, which were worthless and treacherous. He was half-bred, an odious, repulsive being, with only wit enough to be malicious, and of abnormal treachery and cruelty. 
even for his kind. Never can I forget that face of his in the moonlight. He spoke not one word, but simply sat his horse and looked at me with his narrow, gleaming eyes. A malignant grin, making his ugliness fairly fiendish. If you want to get a faint idea of his look, recall the face of Oliver, my son. Ingram's voice sunk to a whisper, and he added, I can never escape it. Gregory's brows knit heavily, and his face reflected something of the tortured misery of the man before him. It was not, said Ingram, until I had staggered to my feet that I saw that across his saddle bow this creature carried a body, Jim. There was an Indian arrow in his side. No matter, no matter for the rest, I understand said Gregory hastily. I was Jim's heir. These words were spoken with hard and scornful emphasis. That was a feature of the case which presents complications to a man in forming a judgment. Perhaps you will believe me when I say that this issue had not entered my mind in letting the boy go to his death. Indeed, the whole series of events was without deliberation but under the influence of blind sullen anger. I believe you, said Gregory. All the same, I profited by his death. The mines proved immensely valuable and are even to the day. They have made me rich and incomparably wretched. A word or two more, and you will know the whole story. Shimra's brought home here for burial. My wife and I returning with his body all through that journey, and continually for many months, I saw before me, waking or sleeping, that face of cruelty incarnate, and the half-witted Indian guide as I had seen him on that awful night. That face was my nemesis. It is still. Within the year, my wife gave birth to a son, Oliver, a strange perversion made up of moral obligatory, mental distortion, and physical deformity, like an embodiment of sin. On his face was stamped by some strange trick of nature, the image which had haunted me, as if the fates, or the fiends, or God himself, had feared I might forget, and know a day of respite. My wife died when Oliver was a few months old, died of cold, the chill of our loveless marriage. Two years later, Cornelia and I were married. I believe she has been happy. I have been prospered and have risen to a position of some influence. And we have all that could be desired in our home, in our three daughters. But when tonight I heard you pronounce the judgments of God on men who had built up prosperity upon a lie, I was like a man struck in his very heart. I felt that I could no longer endure my hidden load and must confess to one human being my past and make restitution. If by any means is it yet possible, the Romish church is merciful when it provides the possibility of confession to sinful men. What have you said to me? Have you healing for such a sore as mine? With these up Abrupt words, Ingram threw himself into a leather-covered armchair with the action of complete exhaustion. His aspect was changed from that of the alert, confident man of the world and of affairs to that of a broken-down and shattered age.
End of chapter 25